Can our unconfessed sin disrupt our intimacy with God so that we feel spiritually distant? If Christians are forgiven, why do we need to confess our sins daily to God? What does it even mean to be forgiven according to scripture? Does God only forgive all of our past sins up to the point of salvation? And how do we properly confess our sins as children of God? We'll be answering all of these questions in today's message all about prayer, forgiveness, and how to confess our sins properly to God. This is episode 12 in our prayer series And we happened to, I scheduled this out, uh, technically I went through this series two and a half years ago with my youth group in California. So this is not me uh, changing the order of things because of what's going on in my life. Uh, We happen to be talking about confession and repentance in prayer this morning. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. And so before we jump into prayer, before we jump into what prayer looks like as it relates to confessing sin, there's a lot of things we need to, we need to lay the groundwork, okay? There's going to be some groundwork we need to lay this morning. So when we talk about repentance and confession, I'll define those terms. I'll talk about our understanding as it relates to being born again believers. Uh, Repentance and confession in prayer specifically, which is the way we bring unconfessed mistakes to the Father, that's that's an essential component of the Christian life. Um, many Christians might feel, and I say might because I'm not going to make absolute statements about your life affairs, but many believers might feel powerless, lifeless, distant from God because of unconfessed sin that actually disrupts their intimacy or at least plagues their conscience unnecessarily and even disrupts their fellowship with God. And so I believe biblically, even as new creations and born again children of God Filled with the Spirit, there is a biblical New Testament mandate to confess and repent of sins daily. Um, Matthew chapter 6 is where we happen to find ourselves in the Lord's Prayer. Technically the disciples' prayer because Jesus doesn't need to confess his sins. Um, So this is more a prayer for the disciples. But before we jump into that, prayer defined um, is talking to God. For those that are like, what's prayer? Prayer is talking to God. And you're like, sweet, that's not it. That's not all it is. Talking to God with intention and with purpose as his beloved child and according to his word. And so the word of God is a component in prayer. Our sonship and daughtership, if that's a term, that's a component of prayer. Intentionality and purpose is a component of prayer. And of course, the general underlying idea of talking to God and communicating with him. So that's what prayer is. The reason we pray is because God has ordained certain things to happen in our life and world Those things will happen through prayer. God has determined prayer is a method, the method of causing certain things in our life, in our world, in our families, in our situations, in our governments, in our culture, governments, you know, plural, because I don't know where you guys are watching from. So that's why we pray, because God has decided certain things in our life and in our world will only happen. Not all things, not the main things. Not the primary things as it relates to the kingdom of God advancing and Jesus coming, but I do believe many things God has ordained and decided. These things will only happen if my people pray. Now we happen to be, I didn't even read the Lord's Prayer, I just kind of jumped in. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed, sacred, holy be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I'm not going to be touching on this dimension of assuming you've extended forgiveness to people. That will be, um, I want to say in like two to three episodes, we'll be talking about that. Today, 
the dimension of prayer I want to talk about is this. Forgive us our debts. Is that a one-time prayer on, you know, at the moment of salvation where there's an ex- expression of faith that looks like confessing and repenting of sin? And what does that look like? We'll talk about that. Or is this also talking about a daily call within the Lord's Prayer? Because if you say, well, this is just a one-time action that a believer commits. When you confess, when you believe in the gospel, when you trust in Jesus, all your debt is wiped away. So therefore, there's no need to daily confess or repent of sin. If, if that is the, the view that you take and the perspective you have, then since this is a one-time prayer, then all of this as one unit becomes a one-time prayer. And that just doesn't make much sense, does it? Jesus doesn't say, pray then like this one time in your life. He says, pray then like this. This should be a typical pattern and model for how we pray frequently throughout our lives. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is, I don't believe we can separate dimensions of this prayer and say, part of this is what we should pray daily other aspects of this prayer is just a one-time thing that happens at the moment of faith. The sinner's prayer typically is how it gets framed up. I addressed that in a Q&A last week. Um, I believe if you're going to say this is how a believer should engage in prayer daily on a general level, then you gotta you got to say this is part of it, this call to confess. So let me take you to Psalm 66 and we'll get going. So The psalmist says in Psalm 66, 18, and I just want to give you this biblical ancient Hebrew idea that I believe has gotten lost over the years as certain ideas have crept into the church and kind of buried this, but there is a biblical concept that Psalm 66, 18 uh, touches on. He says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, and yes, I encourage you to read this whole chapter in context. Absolutely. I still have time to do that. Um, There's a lot of ground I want to cover. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, here's the condition. If... If, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. To what? To the cry of his mouth and the praise that's on his tongue. Essentially, this calling out to God in some capacity, the Lord would not have listened. It seems to be an appeal, a petition of sorts. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Now, what do we do with that as new covenant believers who are in Christ and have a new way of relating to God through faith in Jesus as opposed to the old covenant, Old Testament believer who was, you know, righteous through faith, but they related to God differently. Well, how how do we take this? How do we relate to this? Is that still a concept for the believer in Jesus? That if a believer cherishes iniquity in their heart, which assumes unconfessed, unrepentant sin on their part, that they might be aware of or not aware of, if there is a cherishing of iniquity on any level, is it true that God will not listen to that to that specific person, child's prayer, in that moment with that sin being cherished in their heart? I just want to ask that. I'm not necessarily going to answer that yet. I just want to ask that. <clears throat> Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. The psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is why I said some of us, some of you are experiencing this exact thing. 
there's a, there's a sense in which you feel like your bones are wasting away. Maybe it's not just physical. Maybe it's emotional. If you can metaphorically say the emotional distress and mental turmoil I am in, the spiritual distance I feel from God feels as though I can compare it to physically my bones are wasting away. Some of you feel that. Some of you feel this, this, there's a groaning inwardly in your spirit. And it's not a groaning that, can, that you know, agrees with the promises of God. It's a, it's a groaning for something more. It's a groaning of distress. distress. It's, a, it's a groaning of the people of Israel in Egypt crying out for freedom and, and, and rescue and, and, and an exodus. And that's the kind of groaning and wasting away some of you are feeling. Now, if you go down, for day and night your, hev- your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Who is speaking here? I'll highlight it for you very clearly. It's someone that we know as a man after God's own heart, who had his failures, had his mishaps, had his great successes. But it's David. A man after God's own heart, feeling this, experiencing this. Now, you can say, well, his feelings are not necessarily lined up with reality. What he feels is not true of what's truly happening. That's not his condition. It's just he needs to line up his feelings with the truth. Is that all that's happening? He goes, I acknowledged my sin. And that's it? No, he goes, I acknowledge my sin to you. So this is not just talking about a general awareness of sinfulness and going, huh, I messed up, made a mistake. This is an acknowledging of sin personally and directly to God. And how does one do that? Seemingly through prayer. I did not cover up my iniquity. In fact, and so here's what it means for David to acknowledge his sin to God specifically. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, what does that look like? What did David have to do? Was there some sacrificial uh, was, was there something that related to the sacrificial system and bringing an offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, whatever it was, a sin offering? Was there something David had to do in relation to the tabernacle at the time? Like what? It, it seems as though he just confessed. And there is, on the part of God, a forgiving of David's iniquity. Not to say that David overall wasn't a righteous man after God's own heart, but in this moment, I think what it looks like for God to forgive the iniquity of sin, we have to be careful, we're treading some some really uh, dangerous waters here, but for David to have his sin forgiven contextually means this experience is solved. The wasting away of his bones, inwardly the groaning he experiences, the heaviness upon him, that seems to just kind of dissipate and go away, which is what it looks like for David to experience God forgiving that sin. I think there is a biblical difference between the once-for-all forgiveness we experience in Jesus, which I'm going to touch on, versus this daily call, not for God to forgive as if he missed some sins and it's on you to confess it. I'm not saying that. But there is somewhat of an experience that even a believer can have, which is that there's a disruption in the force. (laughs) Like, there is something off. I feel distant. I feel, and I'm not saying all, every time we feel that, just confess your sin. There's probably an issue on your part. I think people are too quick to assume that, usually. But that is an option. That is a possibility. That sometimes when when that experience 
is something you're going through, there possibly is a dimension of unconfessed, unrepentant, I have not acknowledged certain things in my life, mistakes I've made to God, for God to, I don't know, I'm not saying deal with, because he dealt with all of that at the cross, the, the minute you believed, all of that was dealt with. But there is a sense in which my own sinfulness, the consequences of that, can be a, 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 what David experiences here in Psalm 32. And can, can confession and repentance through prayer sometimes resolve that? And the answer seems to be yeah. So let me explain something up front before I get in big trouble. Um, when we are saved, when we are made righteous through faith and by grace alone, we are forgiven of all sin forever. There is no sin left up to you and me to deal with. There's no amount of sin between me and God that I have to address by confessing. So I'm not saying we need to confess and repent daily to deal with sin and the penalty of that sin that Jesus didn't deal with. That's not what I'm saying. But there seems to be on the part of God, he allows free will agents who are believers like us to experience the consequences of their own sin. And how long do I want to deal with that? It depends on how long I want to sit in unrepentant sin and not deal with it and bring it to God. Now, other consequences are not based on my decision to confess. It's just you're going to face this consequence and that's what you get. Um, so let me, let me clarify. We are cleansed, purified, forgiven of all sin for all time at the moment we believe in Jesus. Now, some people disagree with that. I'm going to give you biblical reasoning and scripture to support what I'm saying. So I'm not just going to give you my word and say, just believe it. I'm going to say, look at the word of God and look at what scripture actually says. And it seems as though all sin is covered at the moment you believe. I told you people would disagree. Just look at the chat. So people are going to disagree. That's fine. This, this isn't the place for you and this isn't the place for you, but you're welcome here. Let me read something to you that I wrote. I sent this to a couple. There has been there have been rumblings in our online church of a uh, of a conversation around repentance, and I'm, uh, that's all I'm going to say. This is this is what prompted me to write this. We just so happen to be on schedule with this prayer series today, talking about confession and repentance. I don't think that's a coincidence. So this there's been rumblings in the online church of what's repentance? What does that look like? We need to define it appropriately. Properly and, and here's what I wrote. I just want to lay this out before you and I want you to consider what the scriptures say right after I give you my spiel, okay? When we believe in Jesus, and yes, I'm reading verbatim what I wrote down. When we believe in Jesus, there is an assumed slash necessary realization of our own sinfulness and our own need for righteousness. And there's an assumed admission of our problem, which is sin and death, which only Jesus can solve. There are, these are necessary components of biblical faith in Jesus and what he's done. For instance, how can someone trust in Jesus to solve something they don't even believe is a real issue or problem, which is to deny sin and death? How can someone believe Jesus solves an issue that they aren't even aware of, which is ignorance of sin and death? According to scripture, everyone has a degree of knowledge, read Romans 1, a degree of knowledge about both God and their own deep spiritual disease that plagues humanity called sin, death, separation from God. However, however small that knowledge may be, every human has an inherent understanding something within the human condition is wrong. And every human 
has a degree of knowledge, however small that may be, that there is a God. But bridging the gap between these two ideas is where things get really tricky. So back to my questions about the gospel. When we say to believe or trust in Jesus, what are we telling people to believe Jesus has done? What are we believing about Jesus in particular? What are they believing Jesus has solved? What are they believing Jesus accomplishes? Biblical saving faith involves an awareness or realization of our own sin and an inevitable death without Jesus. I'll say that again. Biblical saving faith involves an awareness or a realization that we are sinners without Jesus and inevitably we are going to face death without Jesus. However small that understanding and knowledge might be for some, no one needs a profound theology or an inexhaustible understanding of either their sinfulness or Jesus' solution, which is the atonement, all the the complex parts that go into that. Turning to Jesus in belief and faith necessarily involves our agreement with the good news of God's salvation. When you believe and trust and, and turn to Jesus and trust in him, you are agreeing with what God has declared about his son and what Jesus has done. To believe is to trust in something, which assumes you agree that the message is true. And this good news of salvation and righteousness through the son involves God's declaration, not just of salvation, but... It's also a declaration that sin and death are not good. These are issues that need to be dealt with, and they do not have to be our defining reality. So when we say believe and repent of sins, we're describing two sides of the same event, which some would disagree with. We call that the born-again experience through faith. A change of mind about Jesus, our sin, and our own self-righteousness is necessarily a part of believing and trusting in Jesus. This is not the focus. We're not saying focus on your failure unnecessarily. We're not saying magnify the problem above Jesus as the solution. But we are saying turn to Jesus in faith, which assumes admitting your problem and your need for a solution. In fact, to use the story of the bronze serpent as an image of salvation, which Jesus does in John 3, the people of Israel had to look at the symbol of their disease for their healing. There were serpents that were attacking them and inflicting disease and people were dying. Moses erects a bronze serpent, which God commanded him to do. And the people have to look at that bronze serpent for healing, which is an icon of their disease that plagues them. When we look to Jesus, we are looking to the one who bore our human evil and sin. We are looking to Christ crucified and resurrected. So turning to Jesus involves turning from something. That's the assumption. That's literally the assumption within the idea of turning to, it assumes turning from. Think about your perspective. If I, if I look here, I can't be looking back at the same time. If, in order for me to turn to there, I have to turn away from that. So what we are turning from when we believe is not just turning from unbelief to sin or turning from unbelief to belief. It's not just turning from sin. It's not just turning from self-righteousness. It's not just turning from death in order to effectively turn to Jesus. It's all those things. That's what it means to turn to Jesus. Again, repentance biblically should not, should not, and cannot be reduced down to only turning from unbelief to belief. Otherwise, you would have no statements in Scripture about repenting and believing as the means to receive salvation. One must ask, what are we believing in? Which it goes to the question again. What are we believing in? What are we believing Jesus has done? What are we believing he's solving? 
If we're not aware of sin and we deny it, what are we believing about Jesus specifically? True, salvific, biblical repentance and faith are distinct ideas, but they cannot and should not be separated when it relates to righteousness and salvation. When we repent, we do change our minds, which is what people love to say about the Greek word for repentance. It's changing one's mind. We do change our minds about what we once did not believe in, but assumed within that change of mind is that now we agree with what God says about his son, his salvation, our sin, our consequence as sinners without Jesus, and our own lack of righteousness without Jesus. Turning from sin or repenting from sin is not a meritorious work anywhere in the Bible, and it cannot be viewed as an addition to simple faith in Jesus as if to overcomplicate the simple way to be righteous. Repenting from sin is not overcomplicating the simple gospel with an additional work that someone does. When we believe, there is necessarily a changing of one's mind about sin. But this turning from sin cannot and should not be confused with living wholly unto God as an expression of faith. Let me say it like this. One-time repentance unto salvation is different than the ongoing reality of repentance and sanctification that will continue throughout our lives as an expression of our inward faith. The inward reality of a repentant heart that believes in Jesus will inevitably at some point produce an outward change in lifestyle as an expression of true inward faith. When we say turn from sins or change your mind about sin, we are saying do not agree with sin as your defining reality. But we are mainly saying, turn to Jesus for what sin or anything else cannot give you. Turning from sin does not mean stop sinning in order to believe or stop sinning in order to receive righteousness. We don't need to overcomplicate this and make a mountain out of a molehill. It is very simple. Believe the message of salvation that God has declared and the work of salvation Jesus has accomplished in order to deal with your sin in your separation from the Father on your behalf. I say all of that because the moment we believe in Jesus, which assumes repentance, we are forgiven of all sin, all time, for all time, past, present, future. So I have to address both extremes in this conversation. I do. In order to talk about what it looks like to confess sin in prayer, I got to address anyone that would start to lean towards hyper, um, hyper free grace theology, which I don't agree with. And, and those who would otherwise lean towards this idea that Jesus didn't forgive all your sin at the, at the, the minute you believed, that was only your past sin. So you have to upkeep and, and continue to confess and repent. I am addressing both. So let me show you in 1 John chapter 1. Now I'm addressing the people that say, no, all your sin is not forgiven. You, there's, there's an effort on your part to maintain or continue through that forgiveness. Are you sure about that? Because 1 John chapter 1 tells us very clearly, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us From all sin. From what? All sin. Now, from the vantage point of the cross, all sin for us is future. And you go, well, what about the people before Jesus? From the vantage point of God, who is doing the cleansing and doing the forgiving, all sin 
is unfolded before him as all time is. Which means God does not just consider your sin up to the point you believe. It's all sin for all time because that's how God sees and views and interacts with the world. So when we talk about Jesus cleanses us from all sin, his blood cleanses from all sin, there's no qualifying statement. There's no all sin in the past, all sin in the future. There's no qualifying statement. It is just generally all sin. Not all sin up to that point. Not all sin as long as you, it's all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So here's the other side of of the conversation. To deny sinfulness in any capacity, in any degree, even as believers, in the name of not condemning myself, to deny sin is to say, well, in that moment you're self-deceived and the truth is not in you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and guess what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Interesting. So there is, when you get born again through faith, God doesn't just forgive you up to a point. He doesn't just cleanse you up to a point. He doesn't just make you righteous up to a point. All sin across all time for your life and for every other human that will trust in Jesus is dealt with. And I say this because there's there's this mentality we bring in prayer sometimes where it's as if, I have to confess my sin for God to forgive me and view me as righteous and forgiven. As if my position in Jesus depends on my ability to confess. As if my right standing with God depends on my decision of whether or not I'm going to confess and repent of my sin in this moment. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's both sides of the conversation. You're cleansed from all sin. Stop thinking like you're not. Stop living like you're not. But then there's the also don't deny sinfulness, not just in your past. Oh, I was just, uh, that was when I was a degenerate, separate from God, you know, pagan, without Jesus, dead in all of that. that. We don't talk about that anymore. We don't live in our past, but I don't think that means we should just deny the mistakes. I'm not going to acknowledge. We should acknowledge our mistakes before the Father. 1 John chapter 2, but there's a tightrope walk. As with every conversation we have, there is a tightrope walk. I'm walking here. It's both sides. I could fall off either side. I could fall into the, well, just never acknowledge sin because you're forgiven. Then I can fall into the, well, you need to acknowledge your sin so much so that you believe you start to believe your salvation and righteousness and entrance into God's kingdom depends on your confession daily. And it doesn't. It doesn't. 1 John 2, 1 says, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Does John want believers to live in sin? Because I'm forgiven, so who cares? Who gives a rip? Just fart around, do whatever you want. No, obviously his concern is for believers to not sin, which assumes what? Which assumes believers can make mistakes and sin. So there are people that will go, "Eh, if you sin, you're not a true believer. Are you out of your mind? Really? Really? So the very fact that I made a mistake that Jesus pays for, and I have to trust in him to pay for that, the very fact that I make a mistake proves definitively that I don't know Jesus and I'm not a child of God, you must be out of your dang mind. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So we shouldn't, as believers, deny our mistakes and deny the fact that I did, in fact, miss the mark and transgress and sin. We shouldn't deny that. But that shouldn't plague my conscience. 
That shouldn't drive me to despair. That shouldn't cause me to put myself on time out because God doesn't want to be with me. I made a mistake. He's holy. God has forgiven you once and for all. But there is a call, not just to remember the fact that you're forgiven, but to let that identity and that truth drive you to no longer live in once defined you. What once defined you. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So guess what, fellas and lady fellas? All sin for all time. As believers in Jesus, born again by the Spirit, we have right standing with the Father and all sin for all time is dealt with. It didn't say for all time, brother. First of all, does it have to say that? Second of all, let me show you in Hebrews where it does say that. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood. Amen? Amen. And yet some believers think that's only up to a point. That's only as far as my personal obedience goes. Like I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven, only as far as my obedience is concerned. Only as long as I live a certain way. In him we have redemption through his blood. Watch the qualifying statement. Watch the measuring stick and the metric for God's forgiveness. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. And it doesn't stop there. It's according to the riches of his grace, which means what? Let me ask you something. Is the grace of God limited? Is it finite? Does it stop at a point for those who are in Jesus? Be very careful how you answer that. Because if the grace of God is by nature, since it stems from God who is infinite and eternal in and of himself, if the grace of God for those who are in Jesus is infinite and endless, then that right there is the measuring rod for the forgiveness and the redemption that he extends to you and me. Meaning what? Meaning God's forgiveness, God's redemption that he offers you, is not only up to the point that you start sinning again and go back to your reverted, depraved self and you abandon the... It's according to the riches of his grace. That's the measuring stick. If you want to know how much does God forgive me, endlessly, how much sin is covered, all of it. Otherwise, you're putting restrictions and human conditions on the grace of God. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 tells us the kind of forgiveness that should blow us away, guys. This is what it means. And before we, this is why I have to lay the groundwork. Because some of us, are. if I talk about confession, I go, we need to confess. And here's what it looks like. You guys have, might, bring in these misunderstandings into your confession. And then you begin intermingling works with your righteousness and it gets messy. It gets real messy. So Romans 4 verse 7 and 8. This is New Testament. This is Paul quoting David in the Psalms to make a point about our new covenant standing before God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Oh, it's wonderful. Whose sins are covered. And you go, well, that's only up to a point, brother. You got you to gotta maintain, you got to sustain, you got to continue to the end, you got to endure the good works and obedience. That has to be maintained or you'll lose it. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not, not has not, will not count his sin. Now, I don't care how you 
parse out the verb tense here of the not counting. Don't make me bring in someone who actually knows Greek to prove you wrong. The person, David is relishing in the, just absolutely captivated by the forgiveness of God. Why? Because it's not like the forgiveness of people. It's not like the forgiveness that you and I are used to where it's conditioned upon how well we please people and how well we maintain and we continue. It's not conditioned upon anything except God's grace and His love and His promise through His Son for anyone who trusts in Him. This forgiveness, this covering of sin, this God not counting your sin against you is a... It's what's happening here is you have a statement, uh, an indefinite statement, meaning this, it's just going to go on. There's no stopping point. The, the statement doesn't say against, you know, bl- the man, blessed is the man whom God has not counted his sin. It, that would restrict it to like a present and past tense reality. It's a will not. So when, when God goes, if I were to go, God, it, now that I'm in Jesus Will you count my sin against me at any point? God goes, I will not. It's a statement about the future. It's a, there's no uncertainty about whether or not God will eventually change his mind or, or I'll outsin the grace of God or divert back to a degenerate child of the devil. There's no question of that. The Lord will. That's why you're blessed. Because the God forgiving and not counting your sin, it doesn't just go up to a point. Now we get to Hebrews where the real party starts. That was just the pre-party. Now the lights are turned on. Now we got the music bumping. And now people are drinking apple juice and grape juice because that's what Christians do. Hebrews 7, 23 and 25, through 25, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Notice the finiteness of the former priesthood pre-Jesus, which is that, they could only do so much. They were sinners themselves. They were tainted by the corruption that they were atoning for on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They were themselves beset with weakness. They were limited and finite. That is about to be contrasted with Jesus. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Why does that matter? Because he continues forever. Why does that matter? Because that, that right there, brothers and sisters, is going to be the foundation for what kind of forgiveness God offers those who trust in His Son. Consequently, and you can disagree all you want. You can disagree with Scripture all you want. We ain't going to have a Pokemon battle with our, with our Bible verses. Go 1 Peter 9. Go 2 Peter 1. Go Hebrews 7. This isn't a battle. Scripture ain't going to conflict. Consequently, He, because of His permanent priesthood, because of His eternality, which means his priesthood would never end. He himself is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God doesn't change Jesus. The perfect high priest is consistent and never changing. Because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost. Is that a partial, conditional, temporary salvation? It's a saving to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Now you could... You could tear apart the language and the syntax and break it apart as much as you want. The point of the matter is that the saving Jesus accomplishes for any who draw near to God through him, which is a once for all, which is a one time 
born-again experience through faith, that kind of salvation is forever and permanent because it's based on his very nature and essence and priesthood and work. I don't know how much stronger the language can be. Hebrews 8, 7 through 12. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. There's a comparison not just of priesthood, but of comparison of covenant. For he finds fault when he says, and he's going to quote Jeremiah 31 here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, what you're about to see now, pay very close attention to the language here. This, this has become a conversation. I know we're like, when do we pray? Prayer, all prayer, is going to be the overflow of how you perceive God, how you perceive yourself, and how you understand his promises. So if I could just, just, re, just refine these things for you, if I could just fine-tune these a little more for you, your prayer life will be more precise and more powerful. I promise. Hebrews 8.8 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So we have to ask, in what way is this new covenant not like, not like the covenant made with Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses? In what way is it different? Let's not assume, let's not fill in the blanks. Let's let the author of Hebrews himself or herself explain On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, God speaking through the prophet of Jeremiah, they did not continue. So so what is the issue? What is the first point of comparison between the two covenants? Number one, in the first covenant, God took them by the hand, which I think is intentional language. It's God, the the language is, is reminiscent of Lot being pulled out of Sodom. He's just moseying around, I grab my photographs, my memories. And the angels are like, bro, this place is about to be burned to a crisp. He's like, but my iPad. It's like, bro. So they zip him out of there, pull him up by the hand because he was, I don't know, too, too slow about it, like my dog. It's, that's the language. It's, it's God is taking them by the hand. If you, if you notice, the Exodus is this really quick fast happening like what's going on it's uh, that's why god says the uh, the whole unleavened bread thing you won't have time you're going to leave in haste it's god taking them by the hand not just to note haste and and acceleration and things are really really moving but to note the fact that israel was not always in league with what god was doing and there's a part on god to bring them out even if it means them not understanding them being somewhat opposed and really not god is bringing them out by the hand. But even without that, they didn't continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them. If we're going to have two compare two covenants being compared. Listen. If we're going to have two covenants being compared, the first comparison is very clear. For, which is to note because. Here's the issue. They didn't continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For, now we're about to see what is glorious about the new. What is different about the new. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Watch. This is the covenant that is new. I will put my laws into their minds. And you wonder, why is, why is, you would assume it would say, they will continue in my covenant. And that is assumed within what he says. But he doesn't explicitly state that in Jeremiah. The solution to people not continuing in God's covenant 
is not, I'll make them continue. It's, I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They won't need anyone to tell them, know the Lord. They will, this is the statement of the year. They will know me. This is the issue with the old, is that there was an impersonal way of relating to God through priesthood, through temple, through sacrifices, through rituals, through cleansings, through day of atonement. There's, there's no personal, not, not to say there's no personal dimension of faith, but there's no way of like approaching God through the sun, through the way that we have now. So it wasn't really this like, I know God, I can open my Bible and know myself. You knew him communally as a nation. And that is very different. I, I don't think that's worse. I actually think that's better. To be honest, I think we have become very individualistic in our faith. I'm not saying don't have a personal faith. I'm saying your faith is not just for you. It's to be shared. It's communal. It's to be in a body. But nonetheless, I digress. The idea of God putting his laws into their minds, writing them on their hearts, being their God, and them, them being his people is so reminiscent of what he calls them at Mount Sinai, but they couldn't be. But instead, God fixes it now. Which means what? This right here, this becomes an issue of eternal security, which I hate that it becomes that, because I don't just want to always talk about this, but people need to know. This has implications. They didn't continue, so how will God fix that? By enabling them and empowering them, guaranteeing that those who have the Spirit of God in the new covenant will continue. Why? Because their minds and their hearts were the issue in the first. The people were the issue. And that's been solved. God fixes, raises to life, renews the people. Now, look at, look at the statement that follows this. If you're like, this ain't about eternal security, brother. You're inserting a lot of ideals. Look at the last verse. Why is forgiveness a part of this conversation? I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And you're like, well, he did that to Israel. Well, the whole point of this is saying the new will be better than the old. So whatever kind of forgiveness, whatever kind of mercy... God is extending in the new is going to be different than the methodology and the dispension of that in the old. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Let me ask you this. Is God only aware of things in our present reality? Does his knowledge only extend to our present day and age? Can God see past that? Does God know past that? And this conversation isn't even necessary. Like, this text says what it says. God promises what? People of God. What does he promise? I will remember your sins no more. So let me ask you something. If you had the ability to degenerate, revert back to a, a child of the devil under sin and sin your way out of his grace and now you're outside of God's grace and now you're not in his kingdom and now God remembers his, your sin and you're going to be penalized for that, would this promise really be true if that was the case? I will. Th this no more here speaks to what? Never-endingly into the present, no more. So if God ever does, and Rob wants to add past sins, where does it say that? The idea of God remembering and considering is in relation to all the knowledge that he has. You go, well, God can't, uh, can't penalize you for sins you haven't committed, but he would have. But he would have if you weren't in Christ. 
there's, there's no way around this. I, I don't know. Hebrews 9. <laughs> when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all. No, this is talking about the finality of Jesus' work, not your certain personal salvation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Securing what? Let me, let me ask you something. What kind of redemption did Jesus, does Jesus offer? Well, that, 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 that is based on whether or not you'll continue and you'll continue obeying. And you'll, Whoa, where does it say that? It says Jesus secured an eternal redemption, which means the minute you're redeemed, the minute you're forgiven, that package is by definition eternal. It's, it's not conditioned upon anything. Well, it's eternal if. There's no if. It's eternal. Point blank period. Which means it cannot come to an end or cease. That's the very definition of eternality. Apart from it being eternally in the past, eternal redemption means does not end. Now, if your redemption and your salvation could come to an end because you could lose your salvation or outsin the grace of God or, or revert, revert back to being a sinner outside of God's grace, it wouldn't be eternal. It would be conditionally eternal. And if you look at these promises, there's no... Look, look at the whole purifying our conscience from dead works. What? Why would God want your conscience to be purified? Why would he want you to walk in the promise that your conscience is purified if there was the possibility that eventually your conscience might be, I don't know, uh, corrupted by sin again and you'd be a sinner? Well, then your conscience should be plagued. Why these promises? There's no conditions except Jesus. Thus it was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, not made, or into, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, which again the lesser compared to the greater, but now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it, there are people who believe in conditional security where it's like, no, Jesus has done his part, it's eternal, it's certain, it's absolute, but it's conditioned upon whether you continue or not. Show me any, any, any of the enduring, continue to the end uh, passages in scripture that negate the eternality or the foreverness of Jesus' work. For Christ has entered into holy places, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Okay? Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly. But watch. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you could get around this. As it has, he's appeared once for all. Well, you know, that's to note that the end of the sacrificial system has come into the world. Yeah, sure. At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Put away past sin, brother. I love how you insert that into the text. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say past sin. Doesn't say only present sin. That's an insertion of human tradition. That's what we wanted to say. Doesn't say that. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So let me ask you something. Are we sanctified once for all or not? Now, this isn't, ta this isn't talking about uh, the, the sacrifice of Jesus only. It's us being sanctified is once for all. Now, if you could re like become a sinner again and, and, and walk away and lose your salvation, and then you come back, it wouldn't be once for all. That would be twice. Then, then it's not once for all. It's twice for all doesn't make any sense. Every high priest stands, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sin. So let me ask you something. Is there anything 
about the sins being partially based on whether you continue in faith or whether you obey or or does it just say look when Christ had appeared for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should become should be made a footstool for his feet by a single offering let me ask you this has Jesus perfected you up to the point of your own obedience and up to your own I don't know as far as your own personal dedication goes, or as he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you are at any point along the process of being sanctified and you're a child of God through faith, this becomes true of you. You've been perfected for all time. You've been sanctified once and for all. You've been forgiven of all sin for all time. A single sacrifice for all sin. I, I, don't, know, I don't know why people want to like almost make it possible for us to lose our salvation. It's very odd. But I say all of that, I say all of that to make this statement. We are forgiven. Therefore, we can confess our sins to God daily. Let me say that again. We are forgiven. Not we will be, not we might be, not we, uh, depending on our obedience and how well we're doing in school, but we are forgiven forgiven for all time for all sin once and for all eternally forgiven so that we can daily confess our sins to God and the question for a lot of people becomes why the need to confess if we're already forgiven because I'm not confessing to affect my position before God Jesus has affected that forever I'm confessing for the sake of my own uh experience and walk and conscience and and testimony and all these different things um so let me take you to we're actually starting to wind down somewhat um let me show you in there are four things we do when we confess sin when we confess our sins in prayer here's what we do when we confess sin in prayer like jesus says um uh, Father, forgive us as we've forgiven our debtors. Number one, we acknowledge sin. We don't deny it. We don't excuse it. We don't hide it. We don't call it something else. We appeal to God's grace. We accept God's precious promise, and we aspire to live holy. So there's not the, I confessed, I'm good. I'll show you why in Scripture our understanding of confession seems a little shallow at times. Hey, real quick, don't forget to head to abovereproachministry.com to check out all of our free resources. All of our Bible study courses, devotional studies, Bible study workshops, Bible study worksheets, all of my sermon notes, and more. And while you're there, grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, or snag some church merch. You can also find all these links in the video description below. I'm also very excited to announce Above Reproach Ministry Discussion Groups, or ARM Discussion Groups for short. Head to the website if you'd like to see what groups are available near you, or if you'd like to start one in your area, feel free to email me. The first season of video teachings have been compiled into a group study for you and other believers to dive into together. And in the months to come, I hope to have all nine seasons of these video teachings compiled into group studies for y'all to dive into together. We hope this encourages you to meet and grow with other believers to dive into the scriptures as the body of Christ. Well, that is all I have for you. Let's jump back into the message. Psalm 139 verse 3 and 4. The psalmist says, assuming he's talking to God, you search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. 
even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, Lord, you know it all together. I love that. Let's just stop there. You're like, where does this have, what does that have to do with acknowledging sin? You search out my path, and my you're acquainted with all of my ways. I preface what I'm about to say with this passage. With this passage. That God knows all things we don't. He sees all things we don't in ourselves, in our own hearts, in our own lives. Sometimes we make mistakes that we're not aware of. Sometimes we end up falling into sin that we weren't consciously, intentionally trying to do. It's just just almost like on autopilot, not to say there's ever such a thing as like, I made a mistake, but it wasn't me, you know? We personally make decisions, but sometimes it's like on autopilot, or I'm not aware of the fact, like, sometimes I'll sit in anger so long, it takes me a really long time to realize, oh, interesting. I didn't realize that I was harboring bitterness that whole time towards that person. God, I confess that. So I just want to start with this. God is acquainted with all of our ways. If you go down to verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And before I move any farther, um, there's this is pers- this is specifically the dimension of confessing to God. I'm not even bringing in confessing to people yet. I'm not even bringing in the dimension of bringing our sins to people and confessing and asking for forgiveness. That's another conversation, though they do overlap. Okay. But I've intentionally saved that for another episode. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. This is a prayer on the part of the psalmist. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Now, let me ask you this. Is the psalmist confident that there's no grievous way in him? Some people read it like that. They don't know. David's sure there's no grievous way in him. That's why he can say, lead me in the way everlasting. Try me and know my thoughts. I, I, I... I tend to lean toward, not that that's not a reasonable perspective, but I tend to lean toward um, uh, the idea that David is actually genuinely asking um, for God to reveal any thoughts, any ways in him that he's unaware of. And I think that's a healthy part of praying and confessing, is to work from the premise that I don't see everything accurately. I don't know everything So God, please, as I'm confessing or as I'm worshiping and praising, bring to mind any scenarios where I messed up this week or today or yesterday. Not to live in it, but to bring that before you and to confess that with joy, knowing I've already forgiven. Daniel chapter 9 verse 20. What's interesting, and I don't know how how this fits into the message. I just thought it was interesting. That Daniel sees his prayers as legitimately being for the people he's representing. So, Daniel in chapter 9, verse 20, he goes, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, and you go, okay, and the sin of my people, and you go, what? You can't pray for other people's sins. And I was presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. So he's praying for Israel. He's praying for Jerusalem specifically. And he's confessing not just his own personal failure, hmm? As someone who's confident that, that God has declared him right, I believe Daniel walked around with, with the kind of confidence and assurance that you and I, a lot of us, have not yet found. <laughs> and the sin of my people, Israel. Why would Daniel do that? What does that look like? What does it look like to actually... Con- you can't confess someone else's sins. They have to. 
You can't personally affect how God deals with another and confess there. They have to do that. That's a personal thing. It's a personal decision. And I agree. But I also think there's this communal dimension to his faith that we have lost over the years. We've lost it. We've got to get back to the communal, not just the personal, not just the individual, but the communal, congregational aspect. Not just attending Sunday service and throwing the money in to help them really get missions off the ground. But I'm talking like live, breathe, function, pray, serve with the global body in mind. That's, that's different. That's different. Let me take it to 1 John 1, 8. Okay, This is where I believe it's a healthy thing a very healthy thing to um, confess sin. And I don't believe this is, well, let's just read it. First John 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So it's interesting. Um, not going to go there, actually. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, okay? So that is that is the one time, uh, once for all, you know, expression of faith that we call the born-again experience, which involves a degree of awareness of my sin and God, you know, I believe in your son and what you've done through him and you make me righteous, which is an admission of the problem, all of that. I start here because... This is going to be our springboard to Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Okay, is this talking about just a belief, an unbeliever? Is this also talking about believers? He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Here's what I think a lot of people do to just oversimplify ideas and put them into neat categories that fit their their life. Is what we'll say is well. If you're a true believer, you won't conceal your sin. Like a true believer will never conceal his sin and never have unrepentant sin at all in their life. While I don't believe it's good to have that, while I don't believe it's godly to have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our life that we're harboring, I do believe it's possible. I don't, I don't know why we would assume that if someone truly knows God, they will never the Christian life is a lot more complex than we'd like to think. My experience is everyone's experience. Was well, there biblical precedence for you to think that and hold that over people? Well, that's why. I, hold on. What does the scripture say? I believe concealing transgressions, at least here, as an idea for unbelievers, is true. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, which means what? Part of obtaining mercy, if we're just talking about unbelievers... Part of the way someone expresses faith or receives the mercy God has for them freely by his grace is by confessing and forsaking sin. Not in a, I am not living in sin anymore. I turned away from it. I am not sinning anymore. But in a, I'm turning to what God has and turning from what I used to have, which was sin. But if you say, well, that's not talking about the unbeliever to believer transition. You know, this is just talking about a daily experience then I, I don't know why we would limit this to unbelievers. The Proverbs, again, being general wisdom for just the people of God. So maybe it's just a, a general statement about unbelievers, which lends credence to the idea of re how I understand repentance. Um, 
but maybe it's also for believers. But let's just read it. Let's keep reading. Psalm 32, 5. This is where we find ourselves back uh, with David in Psalm 32. Now, David, already being righteous, uh, presumably through his faith in God and trusting God's promises and a man after God's own heart, in that condition, in that reality, he, he says this. Not to become that, but, but from a place of already being, having a friendship with God. Okay, I want to make that abundantly clear. I don't believe that David's real faith or real relationship started after this. I, I believe this is part of the way that David relates to God as someone that has faith, as someone that's righteous, as someone that is after God's own heart. This is part of the way he relates to him. And I don't believe this changes new covenant. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I've heard people um, differentiate, and I have not yet done the study on this, but I've heard people differentiate between iniquity, sin, and transgression. And though there might be nuance to each of those ideas and they might be distinct in certain ways when you, you you look at the actual Hebrew language and what it's saying in context, I would love to know if that's true or not. But the idea here, I believe, is 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 don't think God forgiving here is declaring just and righteous. Let let's remove that from our understanding of what's happening here, and just know that for God to forgive the iniquity of David's sin that he was concealing at least means this: the experience he had in verse three and four seems to be resolved. The bones wasting away, the groaning, the the heavy hand, which by the way, there can be a heavy hand of conviction on you as a believer, not condemnation, not your conscience being plagued, not you walking around with your head down like, I'm an unbeliever, I'm a fake, God hates me, but an essence of there is a spiritual heaviness I'm experiencing, almost like I've heard it compared to, and I think this is a helpful way to, a helpful analogy, um, Thank you, Jocelyn. She said this typo in the notes, Psalm 52. I put Psalm 52. It's actually Psalm 32.5. Thank you, Jocelyn. Um, but let's say like, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting in my room, this massive window, huge window. I've used this analogy before. And I, and I pull these huge, thick shades over, over the window, right? The sun's shining outside. It's beautiful. Oh, glorious day. My goodness. Um, warm, just radiating the light and life of God, and I close the shades. The sun did not stop shining. The sun did not stop heating uh, or radiating its heat to the earth. The sun did not stop warming my region of the world, but I might start to, like, feel the consequences, you might say, of closing those shades and keeping the light out of my room. Maybe it's not as warm anymore, and the heat of that sun coming through the window with my window open, you know, isn't as like, it's not as warm. Or maybe it's not as bright in here and it feels much darker, right? There is a difference in experiences. There's not a difference in in concrete reality. The sun didn't change. The sun didn't stop shining. There's no adjustment in the sun. It's that I did something that had implications on how I was experiencing this life. Um, I, you might say, I changed the way that I was relating to the sun shining through my window by closing the shades. And I think that is a helpful analogy when it comes to understanding how can you say I am forgiven, but unconfessed sin can inhibit my, my, my friendship with God and the joy he has for me because I don't believe walking in sin will produce the fruit of the Spirit. 
I don't believe walking contrary to God will produce the things of God in my life. So you can be a believer. You can have the Spirit. And in a moment, choose to do something that dishonors God, right? Which goes against what will produce joy and hope and peace. And therefore, you experience the opposite of those things. And you're going, God left me. No, no, God didn't change. God didn't change. Your unconfessed sin, your decision to go against God's ideal for your life, that changed how you were, I guess, that changed your relation to uh, how you were experiencing God. Let me say it a different way. That changed your um, experience. Yeah, that's a better word. That changed your experience um, of God in your everyday life. I think that happens quite a bit. Uh, where it's not like my position didn't change. God didn't change. I'm still right where God said I am. His promises are still true. He's still who, he's, who he is. But my, not relationship um, but I close the shades. All I got to do is open them again. Ah, oh, feel the feel the light shining. It's not that he stops shining. It's not that you're not a child of God. It's you got to open those shades. And I think confessing, biblically confessing sin does that, which is what it looks like for David to experience the forgiveness of his iniquity. Um, man, this this psalm goes on and on, but I want to cover some ground. Psalm 38, 18. If I, can, I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin. And this is just what I had written down. This is a Psalm of David talking about what he does. Verse 18, I confess my sin, my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Is it wrong for a believer to feel sorry? It's wrong for us to feel worldly sorrow, but not godly sorrow, which is a remorse. Um, th- there should be on the part of us a, a sorrow when we disrupt our, our friendship with God, when we disrupt our experience of our friendship with God, when we, I don't know, dishonor our Father, that should that should cause a godly sorrow, a conviction. Shouldn't plague your conscience. Shouldn't leave you condemned. Shouldn't cause you to think you lost your salvation. But there should be a godly sorrow, conviction that moves me to confess that, so I can once again open the shades, open those blinds, so the sun of God's presence and light and goodness can can be experienced by me, um, can be a, a you know a part of my life. Um, uh, Matthew 3, 6, uh, I guess verse 8 is where I also want to go, so I'll read it as a unit. You got the people of Israel coming to John the Baptist, and you're like, to get baptized, not just. The baptism in water was a symbolic washing, an expression of faith that was a way for them to visibly show their remorse godly remorse over their sin they're confessing sin thank you nancy that's much that's what i was trying to say for some reason like i had it written down like that sin disrupts intimacy not relationship so if my son comes in here he does something i don't like our relationship didn't change i'm still his father he's still my son but our closeness our intimacy as father son as that bond that's been somewhat disrupted there's something that's disrupted the force. That's a great way to put it. Thank you, Nancy. I'm just stumbling over my words here. Um, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, you brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the idea of fleeing from the wrath to come assumes confessing sin, showing godly remorse, and then from that place, what's consistent with a repentant heart is that fruit is born. 
which we can get to another day. So acknowledge your sin when you pray. When you confess your sin, acknowledge it. Be honest. Um, you know, we have the believers in Ephesus, question mark. Uh, yeah, Ephesus. Yeah, believers, what are they doing? They're believing in Paul's gospel. They're believing in Paul's gospel. What happens? They don't just go, well, I'll just keep the sorcery books in my house. Many of those who were now believers, not to become believers, but because they are believers, they confessed and divulged their practices. Is this praying? Possibly. It could be like an open public confession, kind of like what we see uh, with the uh, Israelites coming to John the Baptist, right? But either way, it's a it's an actual confession. So not just when you pray, don't just acknowledge sin. Some people think like confessing sin is just acknowledging. Now that's the start of it. You can confess lots of things. I can confess that God is good. I can confess that God is the only true God, but do you live like it, right? Do you live like it? Does your life match up with your confession? So when I confess my sin, right, that is an expression of godly sorrow, which some can fake for sure, just for the sake of people are around and they want to impress. But when I confess, the life should match up with the confession. Make sense? So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Which again, we receive. When we confess, I want to make this abundantly clear. Hi, Leandra. Good to see you. When we confess, you are not trying to achieve, attain, or gain righteousness or salvation or a friendship with God. You do this. You confess because you have a relationship with God, not to maintain it, not to keep it going, not to, it's not like you're just throwing some wood on the fire to make sure it doesn't die out. Jesus sustains that to the end. Jesus sustains you. He's, his promises are sure. You just look at him and you look at what he said. And you understand that as we confess, we confess from a place of being forgiven. I want to say this over and over. We confess not to receive a position of forgiven, but because we are forgiven. It's just how believers will relate to God as things happen in their life. Divine Scout, let me just address this real quick. They bring up a good point. Before confessing, one must acknowledge. How can one acknowledge if they were never taught about what are certain sins? It's a good point. This is why a lot of people, some people have asked me in the past, like, Listen, I've been following God. I've been putting more effort into my relationship, and I'm sinning more. I read my Bible. I'm sinning more. I'm praying. I'm sinning more. I'm going. To, I'm doing everything right, man. I'm taking my faith seriously, following God, and I'm sinning more. What am I doing? And I go. Option one is you could be sinning more. Now that's not the likely option. I don't think that's what's actually happening. What I believe is happening is as you know God, your understanding of sin, your, um, I don't know, your categories for sin are actually growing. Like, as you know Him, you understand what is not of Him, and, and new categories appear. And you go, well, I didn't know that was actually dishonoring to God. Well, I didn't know that was sin. So now you have the, the data to recognize those things in your life, whereas before you didn't know it was sin. So the more light shines into your heart, the more darkness is, you know, dissipated, which means that you're going to have 
a more fine-tuned, accurate sin radar. As weird as it sounds, like you will recognize it more. Whoa, that anger. How did I not see that before? Well, because you just, something was revealed in scripture the other day, or something said something, someone said something, or, or in your prayer time, something clicked where you realized there's a, there's a bigger, there's more, uh, I guess, understanding around what anger really is to be had. So, um, that's what happens. That's what happens. But uh, Romans 12.1, to not get off track. The reason I brought up Ephesians 1 is, I didn't even say why, I just read it. Um, when you acknowledge your sin and you confess, you're not trying to be forgiven through your confession. What you're doing is you're appealing to God's grace for any forgiveness you already have. Part of the, the difficult thing about confession is sometimes we have such an acute awareness of, our, of, of, of mistakes that it begins to overshadow the truth and the promises of God. So now all I have, if I'm wearing like a VR headset, all I see is sin. All I see is sin. But I, I'm encouraging you like take the goggles off. That's not your reality. That's just, that's just VR. Take off the goggles and see what's actually true. Not your sin. That's not your defining reality. That's not how God sees you. That's not what's true. What is ultimately true is who God says you are and what he reveals in his word about you in relation to him. So what I need to do is when I confess sin, appeal to God's grace. And you go, I thought I am forgiven. No, that's what I mean. Remind yourself that I'm forgiven already because of his grace. I don't become forgiven by things I continue doing, like confessing sin. Sometimes we allow, and I touched on this last week, sometimes we allow our own performance and good works to leak into our way of relating to God. And now I think God forgives me, or I am forgiven, because of, boop, my resume of all the good things I've done. And now when I confess sin, there's a, there's a kind of pride in me that says, God, I'm confessing, but man, so glad to be forgiven. And you're only thinking I'm forgiven because of all the good I've done. And you forget, oh no, I appeal to his grace. Romans 12.1, Paul will essentially appeal to the mercy and grace of God and say, look, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Whether it's confessing sin or living holy, the appeal is not to do it. He's, 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 God is just like bullying you into doing it. No, it's look how magnificent his grace and mercy is. And you're like, wow. The longer I stare at that, the more beautiful it becomes. And then God goes, yeah, now continue looking at that as you go and live life. Because that right there, that becomes your motivation to live the Christian life. That's, that's your power source right there. It's the mercy and grace of God. That's what you're responding to. That's what's motivating you. That's what's driving you. Psalm 50, 51 verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. David confessing, David repenting, David asking for God's mercy. He doesn't say, have mercy on me according to my entitlement, according to what I deserve, according to what I've done, according to your steadfast love. So when God forgives, and because we already are forgiven, that is based on his love, not your efforts and your personal knowledge or education or, or abilities or or obedience. It's none of that. The, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 
there is a, a desire on the part of the believer to like have their life cleansed. Their life, not their identity, not their spiritual condition, not their truest self, but their life to be cleansed of anything that dishonors God. There's a desire on the part of the believer not to tolerate it, not to deny it. So when we pray, we, when we confess sin, we acknowledge sin, obviously. We appeal to God's grace and then we, we accept God's promise of forgiveness. Not because I've confessed, but even before I did. I receive that promise. God, you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're faithful and just to forgive us. Psalm 51, 1 through 7. Wash me thoroughly. I know my transgressions. I know my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And he goes on and on. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. There's a desire on the part of the believer to not, like as a believer, as someone who loves God, we should want to, or I'll say it like this, we should not want to focus on sin. Though we often at times are drawn to that and it's like a default because we've been like beaten and hammered through our, in our past to like focus on your sin. People of pastors have rubbed our nose in the dirt and eat it. That, that kind of trauma is hard to break, break from. But there's a desire on the part of the believer to not let sin be my def- be my focus and my defining reality, but to go, no, you, your steadfast love, your mercy, your promises, your grace, and I accept, I stand on those promises. I don't appeal to my performance. And part of confession is the aspiration or the aspiring to live holy. So we don't move on from sin in terms of, I'm just going to go right back to it because I'm forgiven and I can just confess and I'm already all right with God. We do move on in terms of, God, I don't need to think about this anymore. Some people think like true confession is you have to think about that sin long enough for it to really drive you to despair, then you're really sorry. No, any godly remorse doesn't have to come with, not all godly sorrow comes with actual tears and an actual like, like, whoa, the weight of that just wrecked me and I need to sit for a while. That, that, that's not how it always looks. But there is conviction and godly remorse and godly sorrow that comes with realizing I made a mistake, but I'm still who you say I am. You're still who you are. And I aspire to live holy. So move on from your sin is what I'm saying. And moving on doesn't mean moving back into it. Some people think moving on from means being okay with it and living like you're forgiven while accepting and tolerating sin. Quite the opposite. To move on from sin means you look at him and you leave it behind. So there's this, there's this double-edged sword where it's like, I don't want to be condemned, but I don't want to abuse his grace. And it's like, well, the solution is to look at Jesus daily. Matthew 3.8, there's a call again, and then we're done after Psalm 51. When John the Baptist calls people to repentance, to con- there's a confession of sin as part of their water baptism, which has a lot more cultural and historical background to it. But when they're confessing, John is calling people to, hey, with repentance will come fruit. So don't just confess. Don't just be repentant and change your mind. But go and live different. And it seems as though the life will always be a reflection of the heart. So if I change my mind and my heart towards 
fill in the blank, my life will follow. Psalm 51, 9 and 10 is the perfect example as we end here. This aspiration to live holy. Aspire to live different. Change your ways. Don't go back to it and go, I'm forgiven. I, listen, some people confuse like, and I understand, we should not focus on sin and let that be our defining reality, right? I'm not, I don't, I don't want to live condemned, brother. I don't want to like focus on what Jesus has handled. Cool. That doesn't mean you ignore it. Acknowledge it. Well, I don't want to stay too long. Otherwise, I might begin to let that overshadow the grace of the Savior. I'm not saying live in it. I'm not saying look at it too long. I'm saying acknowledge it. It's there. Now look at his grace longer. Look at his forgiveness longer. And then move on from that place of living in sin and and, and tolerating it. Because some people think like, well, if you put too much effort into beating sin, you put an unhealthy focus on it and you start to, and in the name of not being condemned, we just kind of don't deal with it. We wait till it comes up again. Then we'll see if we're ready to face it differently. And it's like, no, no, understand that preparation and faithfulness and responsibility go into us, us, um, you know, actually being able to move on from sin. Some people think moving on is just an emotional or mental uh, exercise. Where it's like, I just got to move on from it, man. You're right. Counsel me. Put me in therapy. And those things have their place. But moving on from something is not just a mental or, or, or emotional exercise. Where's your life at in relationship with those things? And I, I think, here's what I'll say. Condemnation will breed more sin. Self-condemnation will breed more failure, or at least a greater awareness of your failure, which will inevitably produce more failure because you're going to reproduce what you're focusing on. So instead of being condemned, I mean, I, I acknowledge that conviction and go, hmm, that was wrong. Confess. Thank you for your precious promise that I'm still forgiven. I always was before I even realized the sin in my life. Help me to beat this and then move on from it and focus on him. The best way to beat sin is not to focus on beating sin. I think there's there's this misunderstanding in the faith where it's like, hey, take it seriously, which means all day, every day, focus on like not sinning. Terrible way to live. Terrible way to live. If you focus on the righteousness of God and the forgiveness and promises that he's given you, that the byproduct naturally, I'm not saying without your efforts, I'm not saying without your conscious awareness, I'm not saying without you doing something, I'm saying naturally and organically, the byproduct of focusing on him will be abstaining from what dishonors him because he's so good. Why would I look at anything else? Psalm 51, 9 and 10, part of David's confession is this. You think he would end there and be like, whoo, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven, baby. He, 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 he moves, from, like he continues in that place. With this, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then uphold me with a willing spirit. Of course, David, working on different terms and working with a different degree of understanding that we now have, looking hindsight at this through Jesus. But the, the heart of this is, I don't want to go back to or fall into or let that plague my conscience moving forward. So it is God cleanse my conscience and it's also cleanse my life. Cleanse my conscience so that I can have a clean life. Inwardly, whatever's off in my spirit or in my heart or in my mind, fix that. So that 
condemnation and sin don't plague my conscience. And then, Lord, change the way that I live. I don't want to live focusing on not sinning. I'm not, you know, playing against the other team just trying not to lose. I'm trying to win. And I win by focusing on Jesus' victory in all things. So aspire to live holy. Accept the precious promise of the fact that God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus of all sin for all time. Appeal to God's grace when you receive and lavish his forgiveness and enjoy that and, and you're captive. Just appeal to his grace and his love for you. Not your performance, not how well you've done. None of that is a factor in whether or not God says you're forgiven. And also acknowledge your sin. Don't excuse it. Don't hide it. Don't deny it. Don't don't label it something different in the name of, I'm just trying to like not let it. Acknowledge it for what it is. That's all I got for you guys. Don't really know how to move on from there. This might be a time for you guys to just sit in that, honestly, and pray and go be with the Lord. I'm not even going to say, this is above reproach ministry. Go and some of you need to actually deal with some things in your life that you weren't aware of that you are now or some things you've been aware of that you're like, I've been hiding, I've just been not acknowledging it, I've been belittling, minimizing it, and I need to deal with that and just confess that before the Lord because I've felt this, this tension in my intimacy, like Nancy said. All right. Hey, I just want to thank you for all your support and prayers that make this ministry possible and help us to accomplish our mission. Your support makes it possible for us to create all the free resources we have available for anyone around the world. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So be sure to visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for all these free resources and to support this ministry. And if you're a new believer, be sure to check out the New Believer section on the homepage of our website and grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, while you're there. God bless you guys, and as always, keep moving towards Jesus. Jesus.